All right, before we get to Acts chapter 4, uh, Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples not to leave the upper room, but to wait. And that was because Pentecost had not fully come. But when it was going to fully come, Jesus said you will be empowered when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that empowerment is so that you can be witnesses unto me to the ends of the earth. So on Pentecost this year, we prayed for that same empowerment, empowerment from on high by the Spirit of God to be faithful witnesses, specifically in the area of agape love or loving as Jesus loved or love that God of the Bible is the source of. And... Um, that prayer has been answered. I keep being compelled to speak that because it's true. The prayer's been answered. What prayer? The prayer that we all made to be empowered by the Spirit of God to be faithful witnesses and to walk out agape love in the coming year. That prayer has been answered. So as as is often the case with God when we pray and ask for something to be given, it's very often uh, the manifestation is we're given opportunities to walk in what we've asked for and the assurance comes not in that it just happens naturally or automatically, the, the assurance comes that we have been empowered to walk it out. Does that make sense? So so we pray to be empowered to walk in agape love. Here's what's gonna happen, here's what is happening. We're gonna each be given opportunities to walk in agape love. Specifically, in the way that he's sh showing us it works and it happens. And we're gonna be given these opportunities to walk it out and the assurance is that we've been empowered to do exactly that that makes sense so I'll repeat one more time the prayers that we made Susie on Pentecost have been answered we've been empowered already to walk in agape love so that means when these opportunities come and they're right in front of us we can be assured that we have the power to do the right thing we have the power to be obedient To the things that God is showing us. So the empowerment has already come. Now the instruction is follows, follows, right? So the instruction has been just super simple, practical, actionable steps that as we, in obedience, walk them out, we will give love. Tip of the spear, Jesus love, that will accomplish the Father's purposes in that moment. So the steps have been so far, look people in the eyes when you address them because somehow, way, the eyes reveal the truth of what's inside and, and God only deals with the truth. And as we are looking people in the eyes, we're instructed not to prepare what to speak, not come with our automatic answers, but rather wait and trust 
that at that time the words will be given to us. And as Jesus promised his disciples, it will not be you speaking. It will be the very Holy Spirit speaking through you. That is always going to be really the definition of real ministry. When God is working through us, when the Holy Spirit is speaking through us. And sometimes when we look people in the eyes and have the Spirit speak through us or the Spirit show us what is needed, often it will be an actual need, and our instruction is to meet that need as an act of agape love. And that's specifically because of everything the Father gives each of us and trusts us to steward. Not all of it is ours, and in fact, some of it is already theirs. Right, so since we're not harvesting fields anymore, you can think about this as your paycheck, perhaps, or your however God provides for your family. We're not to spend all of it. Just like they weren't to harvest all of it, we're not to spend all of it because some of it is specifically intended to be left for others. And as we have that heart and as we have that um, agreement with the Father already, it becomes very easy to give because it's already there. It's already set aside for them. It's already prepared for them. Make sense? So those three steps, not necessarily difficult steps, maybe new but not difficult, but regardless, we will and already are going to be given opportunities to walk out each of those. And the promise is already is that the, the power to do it, the power to be obedient has already been given. Now we just walk it out. Okay? Last week we started with number four. Speaking about having boldness with the truth as an act of agape love. What? All right, let's go to Acts chapter 4. As we mentioned um, two or three weeks ago, when, when Jesus was sending out his disciples, he specifically told them, when you go out, go out, do not prepare what to speak. When you are placed in front of kings and governors, the words that need to be spoken will be given to you at that moment. And as we talked about, that was not just a teaching, but it was also prophecy, prophecy of um, where the apostles would ultimately be led after the spirit was given. They were gonna be led into these positions to speak speak to government, speak to the religious institutions, speak to powerful people. And in Acts chapter 4, that prophecy comes to pass for Peter. And um, Peter's obedient to do what Jesus asked him to do, which is not prepare what to say, but rather open your mouth and allow God to speak through it. And the The um, outcome of this interaction speaks volumes to the boldness that we're being called to. 
All right, so let's read this real quick, if, if someone doesn't mind reading out loud. Um, Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 12, please. Michael, you got it? Thank you. All right, so the, the context here is uh, Peter is being brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the an appointed group of elders within the Jewish community. Each region had a Sanhedrin. They could be, I think they were either like 24 or 72 people. And, and these guys basically were the power. They were the um, religious institutional power. And as Peter and John are ministering and bearing witness to Jesus after Pentecost, um, a bunch of crazy stuff is happening, and these guys um, aren't liking it. And so they're bringing them to in front of this board of elders, and this is the question that they ask. All right, that's the context. By what power are you doing this? Go ahead, Michael. Okay, so if we can recognize that this is the fulfillment of, of prophecy of Jesus saying to Peter, when you get placed in front of these powerful people, the words are going to be given to you. If we can see that this is the fulfillment of prophecy, then we can recognize that this is literally the Spirit of God speaking, right? And when the Spirit of God speaks, it's to accomplish the will of the Father, Right? And, and what do you recognize, just from an observation standpoint, what, have you, what do you recognize about what Peter said? Go back and even reread it if you need to. And I pray that we have eyes to see. Father, give us eyes to see. Specifically what you have for the, your congregation at NCC today. Give us eyes to see, Lord. Okay, so first and foremost, he's honoring God. What else? Yes, ma'am? He took 
Yes. Right, Christ is. Yes. Um, and have the truth being exposed exactly to right. a group of high priests who were not of the Levites, who were appointed and declared what was true and Amen. how far the original plan had fallen from the tabernacle days. Good. Amen. What was the original question? Oh, yeah. I was going to say in verse 8. Verse 8, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and then he began to speak. Okay, so the Spirit is speaking. These are, these are one of those moments where if you know what was prophesied about prior, you just read it differently. You read it with the weight that it deserves. What's the weight that it deserves? This is God speaking through a vessel to power. God speaking to power through a vessel. And what power asked, I'm speaking about the Sanhedrin, calling them little P power. What the power asked is, how is this happening through you? How, would, how did that man, how was he healed through you, by you, because of you? And listen to me, what Peter could have said, and what I would argue the church today would likely say is, he was healed by Jesus. Wouldn't that have been a correct answer? Absolutely. Would that have sufficed and met the, the, the question that the Sanhedrin asked? Absolutely. And, and if it would have stopped there, would, would both parties have been comfortable, left comfortable, left in comfort? No offense, no defensiveness, no accusation, right? That, that could have been the answer. By Jesus, we did this. End the conversation. But what does the Spirit continue with? Like, literally, the most offensive thing that could have been said following Jesus did this. What does he say? The Jesus you murdered. Right? This is literally the group of people that signed off on Jesus' murder. Everyone realized that. The Sanhedrin that is spoken about in John 15, 16, 17, or 17 and 18 that we're literally in in our study, same people, same guys that signed off on Jesus dying, that were the yes that sent him to the cross. This is the same group. So for Peter to say, by Jesus we did this, by the way, he's the one you guys killed, the most offensive thing he could say. Is it truth? Absolutely. Why would God say this? Because God only exposes the truth. He never hides it. He never hides it to, to spare feelings. He never hides it to make sure not to ruffle feathers. He always only exposes the truth. And then how does the, uh, how does the exchange end? A touch to what? The gospel. Right, because that, at the end of the day, is always the master's business, is it not? He ends with, There is no salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Was the Sanhedrin asking anything about salvation? Anything about who Jesus was, or is, or what he's doing? 
This is just God's voice coming through a vessel. Isn't that an unbelievable, perfect picture of what agape love looks like, of what the boldness that we are speaking about looks like? It's not a prepared answer. It's not a cookie cutter answer. It's not what everyone hopes to hear, wants to hear, expects to hear. It's the truth that needs to be heard. Never, ever, ever shied away from or withheld because it's going to offend. Oh, uh, absolutely. Which leads to what? Now read verse 13. When, when the offense of the truth hits, listen to me, guys. When the offense of the truth hits, something is seen. Something is realized. That is never realized when we shy away. And what is it? Go ahead. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. It is the only thing that bears witness. The only thing. Boldness testifies to the truth. And the cowardice of not offending people with the truth testifies to nothing. And we are guilty. The church is guilty. The saints are guilty. The Sass family is guilty. Of believing that not offending is showing love. So praise God for correction. And praise God for empowerment. To walk in love that is different. So we're going to remember Peter's example as we talk about boldness. And if you, I'll give you my simple interpretation of Peter's example. When the spirit speaks, the feelings of the audience 
the offense that's certain, the backlash that's coming, none of those things deter the truth from coming forth. And when the truth comes forth in spite of all of that, a witness is made. A believable, credible, maybe even undeniable witness is made. And somehow, some way, God works within that witness to accomplish his purposes. When boldness is recognized, what's it connected to? They've been with Jesus. What's the whole witness we're supposed to give? Jesus is real. See that connection? So there's two types of boldness that we're going to be discussing. The first and the one we're going to talk about today is confronting sin in the church. The second will be sharing the gospel outside the church. Both of those require boldness in the face of much. They both, they're two very different things, by the way. Boldness within the church, confronting sin, and boldness outside the church, sharing the gospel, two very different boldnesses. They sound different. They, they are different. All right, so we'll get to this one shortly in the weeks to come, but for now we're going we're gonna to camp on confronting sin, which is specifically why last week we spent a good deal of time on two truths that are key in this area of boldness. And the first truth we mentioned was just the masterful job the enemy has done in creating a culture right now void of the truth and therefore highly offendable, highly defensive. And um, I can't say it any better than than uh, you know, we live in a time in which sin has been first overlooked. I'm talking to the church. First over overlooked, then tolerated. Sin, we're talking about. Then permitted, then legalized, literally. Then promoted and now celebrated. We can all recognize that. But that's the culture the enemy has created. And once sin has been first overlooked, then tolerated, then permitted, then legalized, and now celebrated, once you reach that point, anyone who speaks against sin is going to be persecuted. Do we live in that time? Yes. So what does that mean? We can't be bold. We shouldn't be bold. We mustn't be bold. Nope, it means the exact opposite. 
This is specifically what the Lord is calling us to. Boldness with the truth, boldness regarding confronting of sin, and yes, we live in a, in a time and a place in which that's difficult. Romans chapter 1 has come to pass right in front of us, has it not? So we need a foundation to stand upon because of the cost that confronting sin is going to come with. I'm talking to the church. I'm not talking to those outside of the church today. I'm talking to the church. In the church, there will be a cost to confronting sin. Why? Because the church has taken on the aspects and the mentalities and the ways of culture. She was never supposed to, but she has. So in the church, we have a highly offendable, highly defensive victim mentality about sin, especially our favorite ones. They've been overlooked, they've been permitted, they've been tolerated, now they're being legalized and celebrated. In Romans 1, Paul is not talking about the world, by the way, he's talking about the church, as all the letters are to the church. So it's the same issues, the same environment's been set. When you speak the truth, people don't want it. When you speak the truth, people don't like it. So we need a super solid biblical foundational why in order to have the permission, let alone boldness to do that, do we not? And the why is what? The why should be what? If we are speaking about agape love and we've already been taught that when we speak, we're not to prepare what to speak, but to rather wait for the Father to speak through us, should we know and understand the Father's stance on sin and sinners, bless, her, bless you, and confronting sin. Should we know those things? Yes, why? Because we're actually talking about the Father speaking through us. Right? None of this is about my opinion about sin. It should never be about your opinion about sin. Right? We want to know what the Father thinks about sin because we're literally talking about him speaking through us. Does that make sense? It's almost like the Spirit saying, you, you need to know what, how Father God thinks about sin because he's going to speak through you against it. And you need to be okay with that. Right? And, and here's the deal, as much as the enemy has done a masterful job of creating a culture with no truth, so that anything is truth, so that bringing truth is met with only offense, he's also created a fantastic false Jesus. And the, and the f fantastic false Jesus that much of the church is deeply in love with is the Jesus that doesn't care about sin. That's all grace and all mercy and all patience and all love. And all those aspects of Jesus are wonderful and beautiful and I'm highly grateful for them. But that is an unbalanced representation. And that indoctrination into that unbalanced representation, saints, starts very young. I'm telling you, it literally starts in kids' ministry. 
Diane was just telling me yesterday about a exchange she had with someone who was asked if, if we do a VBS and Diane said, no, we don't do that. And, and she said, oh, my, my, my girls are in VBS this week and they're just loving it. Just, they're just having a blast. And the little one was sitting right there, looks up at Diane and what'd she say? And then, and then tomorrow's the grand prize. I mean, literally just, just gifts, just Jesus, the candy man, and the genie in the bottle. And that is not rare. That's the common expression. That's the common indoctrination of a Jesus or a God who was just all blessings. It's fake Jesus. And it starts at that age. Yeah? Back to your question. When you said that we need to know how God feels about sin, would it be correct to say that so that when we are submitting to the Holy Spirit within us and He speaks through us, then we have the confidence to know that what we are speaking is true? Absolutely. A hundred percent. If you know the God of the Bible based on the Word, then when the words come forth, they're not going to surprise us. They shouldn't surprise us. When God, through you, Cole, confronts sin, you should recognize that that aligns with the God of the Bible. Or, to the flip side, if the enemy speaks through you to water down sin, you should recognize the incongruency with the Bible. Right? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's specifically commentary on speaking the truth outside the church, which we will get to. It's the same principle, but inside the church, the, the why is different. And, and there's probably multiple aspects to speaking the truth within the congregation that, that God is going to inform us on. Right now, there's a single focus, and that's confronting sin. Okay, so in order to have the boldness to open our mouth and allow that to come forth, we need to have a biblical foundation of how the God of the Bible feels about sin. So last week we looked at two texts, 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 <laughs> can't say it, uh, regarding how God feels about sin. 
And they're two very specific scriptures that we chose because they're two times in which the God of the Bible describes himself. Almost, you know, I don't know if there's others, there's, but I don't think there's two more direct ones when the God of the Bible is describing himself. The first one is in Exodus 20 when he gives the third commandment, the commandment about not making a graven image God. He says specifically about himself, essentially, that he is a jealous God that punishes sin and blesses obedience. Actually, let's read that. Someone, someone read Exodus 24 through 6, and I'll find uh, 34. He's describing himself right now. This is the first time in scripture when the God of the Bible describes himself. He wants us to know something about him. And specifically to this teaching, he's showing us how he feels about sin. Like super directly, super plainly, super clearly. Go ahead, Bonnie. Okay, so for sin... He punishes not only the, the sinner, but he punishes the generation and. Unto the third and fourth generation of them almost repeated word for word text happens in verse thir uh, chapter 34, verse starting in verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord and the Lord passed before him and God proclaimed Lord the Lord the Lord God merciful gracious long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for a thousands forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin but by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation so those are two very specific scriptures in which the God of the Bible describes himself and specifically reveals how he feels about sin and sinners and how he feels about obedience and those who love him. And we want to know this because we want a biblical foundation for confronting sin. That's the whole purpose of this. We want to know how God feels about sin because that is a biblical foundation for, for confronting sin. The lie has always been God hates sin, but he loves the sinners. And that lie has always only led to lawlessness. The body of Christ thinking that I can live however I want, I can do whatever I want, and God is going to love me because he's the God that gives candy, and he's the God that gives hoverboards, and he's the God that you can come to the conference and receive your blessing, and he's the God that can go on and on and on. What does, the God, what does the God of the Bible say about himself? Well, if I had to summarize it, the God of the Bible says that how he deals with his own is almost exclusively based upon what we do with his commandments. Did you hear that? Because that is not commonly understood. How the God of the Bible 
deals with his own is based almost exclusively on how we deal with his commandments. That's what he says. If you keep my commandments, you get grace and mercy and long-suffering and blessings and protection and provision and every other good fruit that comes with our obedience. If you choose to not keep my commandments, you get consequences. Not only you, but you and your kids and their kids and their kids. God is so clear about this. Crystal clear. Paul in the New Testament says in Galatians 6, he puts it a way that to me has always just spoke volumes. And that way is essentially everyone's going to reap what they sow. All right, that's what he says in Galatians 6, chapters, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God will not be mocked. Everyone will reap what they sow. Those who sow in the flesh will reap destruction. Those who sow in the spirit will reap eternal life. Right? Paul is just articulating what God has said from cover to cover in Scripture, which is how he deals with his own is based almost exclusively on what we do with his commandments. Okay, now this can be, stop the sermon right now and this can sound a whole lot like we got to earn our salvation, right? So let's balance that out. Let's balance this out and get it right. And I'm speaking specifically to the church right now, right? There is a different message for the non-believer, I'm talking to believers. I'm talking to those who are authentically born again right now. Okay? So because that is the case, I can use the Exodus story as the type and shadow that it is to clearly communicate what the Spirit's saying right now. All right? All of this is to embolden us to confront sin. What's the biblical why? The biblical why be behind why we should be emboldened to confront sin as an act of love. Well, what's clear is that the God of the Bible deals with us almost exclusively on how we do with his commandments. Okay, so how, how can we communicate this using the Exodus story? Well, it's, it's super simple, right? The, the instruction to the children of God and Exodus 10 was to kill an unblemished lamb and mark your home. Why? Because, because God was sending an imminent death, and this was your salvation from that death. Right? Was that salvation earned? No. Offered freely by God. By God's choice, by God's desire, by God's will, and by God's plan. His love and salvation was already offered. And to those who obeyed the instruction to mark their home, it was already granted, was it not? So was, that, was any part of that salvation earned? Absolutely not. It was only by the blood that it was theirs. Okay, but, but the minute that salvation was given, 
what happened next? What was to happen next? Leave Egypt. Right? Leave what? What is Egypt? Right, brick making. Whips and chains, shackles. A bondage, just zero escape, zero life, zero joy, zero purpose. Hopelessness. But, but listen to me, guys. They were already saved. What saved them? The blood. And the blood already did its job because it was God's love given, offered, already theirs. But once that salvation was given, then their side of the equation kicks in. And what is their side? Stay right there. Is if you stay right there, you get to keep the same oppression, the same bondage, the same addictions, the same hopelessness, the same shackles, the same whip marks on your back. It's not God's side of the equation that causes sin consequences. It's our side. Right? And every one of us who are authentically born again have every opportunity to stay in Egypt. Are we still saved? Yes. Do we still belong to God? Yep. Are we freed somehow from the consequences of sin because we're born again? I think it makes it worse. So this fake God that hates sin but loves the sinners, and you can live and do and have whatever you want and it's all going to be okay, come and get your blessing, come and get your candy, come and get your hoverboard, that's not God. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible deals with his own almost exclusively based on how we deal with his commandments. He's already done his part if you're marked. He's already fully manifested his love to you. 1 John chapter 4. By this the love of God is manifest that he sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever believes in him shall live. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. God's side of the equation is totally done. It can't be earned. It isn't earned. It can only be experienced. And you can experience it momentarily when you are authentically born again. But the ongoing experience of that love deals with our side of the equation. And our side of the equation is one of two choices. Stay in Egypt, which is continue to sin and experience everything that comes with that. Or leave Egypt behind, which is obey God's commandments and experience everything that goes with that. Okay, how might Jesus articulate this? Let's go to John 15. And someone read 9, 10, and 11.
These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you shall love one, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay. It, no, that's good. It, is that not Jesus perfectly articulating the Exodus story? It's perfect. What part of it is perfect? Well, it starts with love. What love? His love for us. That is what? Already given. Is that not where he starts? His love is done, complete in every way, perfect, needing nothing to be added to it. It cannot be earned. It cannot be bought. It can only be accepted. But he says... Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. And now the emphatic second point is what? Abide in my love. Abide means what? To stay. To be near. To take hold of. I thought I wrote down a couple more. To dwell in, to keep, and to take hold of. So Jesus is saying, I love you. That love's been given. That love's been offered. That love comes as a marking, as a banner, as an ownership transfer. That's given. Now, if you want to keep that love, if you want to hold on to that love, if you want to experience that love ongoing, you got to do what? Keep my commandments. Because my commandments are going to slowly but surely take you out of Egypt and towards the age to come. You can stay in Egypt all you want. My love is still given. My love is still offered. My love is still yours. You can stay in Egypt all you want and experience everything that comes with that. Or you can abide in my love, which is to say experience my love, experience the salvation that is my love, the eternal life that is my love, that's already underway now as you walk with me down the narrow path. We just read that text like two weeks ago, and I knew there was more clarity coming for it. And the beautiful thing is he says that when you, when you abide in my love, by keeping my commandments, you are going to have a very specific kind of joy. You know what he says? Full joy. Full joy comes with what? Obedience. Why? Because in and by our obedience, we abide in God's love. We're not earning it. We're just abiding in it. Because his ways are right and good and good for us in every way. So it's only when you have that foundation, right, that biblical foundation for how the love of God works, how the love of God has been given, but more specifically, how we continue the ongoing abiding in God's love 
It's only when we have that biblical foundation that we can understand the confronting of sin to be an act of love. Because what is it? It's basically seeing my son still in Egypt, calling that truth out and saying, hey, let's get out of here. Would that not be seen as an act of love if the whips were still coming down on his back? And the bricks were still being built. And the shackles were still along his ankles. It would only be seen as an act of love. So listen, we've got to understand sin the exact same way. Regardless of how tolerated it is, regardless of how celebrated it is, regardless of how much we love it. And that takes a tremendous amount of boldness in an age of offense, in an age of tolerance. And I'm recognizing, saints, that there has been multiple times when I've fallen short in this area as, as a shepherd. And I repent for a false version of love that I have offered many of you. That has been the I don't want to offend type of love. The I'm going to overlook kind of love. And I was very convicted when I think it was about a month ago now we read John chapter 10. So I want to read this and recommit personally to the love that I know I'm called to and the leadership that I'm called to. Leadership that I've fallen short of. This is John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. But I want verse 7. Yeah, John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you that I am the door of the sheep, and all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Anyone if anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they, have, that they may have life and have it too, and, and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And, and flees. 
and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I know and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I may lay and I may lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I will bring, and they will hear my voice, and there and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Here's the conviction that I got when I read that. The metaphor is perfect for the role of the shepherd. And that is a good shepherd protects the sheep. Not entertains the sheep. Not makes the sheep feel good about themselves. Not make sure the sheep remain friends. That type of a shepherd is a hireling, the Bible says. A hireling means they don't care. They're doing it for a paycheck or they're doing it for an ego trip or any other of wrong reasons. But if the shepherd truly loves the sheep he will recognize that his role is to protect them. So the protection that I am to offer this congregation is from the enemy. And the enemy has one offense against you and I, and that's sin. Every time. So to see sin and to not expose it can't happen. That's not a pastor. And I have literally heard a pastor in this in this community speak what this sounds like verbalize what this in the heart really sounds like and it was a time where um a, a, one of the pastors brought in a, a guest a guest and um the 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 day the week after uh we got together and prayed and i asked him you know how the in this the guest is a very well-known kind of a you know, famous, if you will, Christian evangelist. And I said, how did, how did the Sunday go? And he said, oh, first words out of his mouth, oh, that guy's a rock star. And he was kind of saying it jokingly, but that's what he said. And, and I said, oh, okay. Well, what, you know, how, how did it go? He said, oh, it was amazing. He said, the guy just came and dropped truth bomb after truth bomb after truth bomb and um, and then the next thing he said is, I'll never forget it. He literally said, I mean, literally things that I could never say because I'm these guys pastor and I'm with them every week. 
And I'm telling you guys, that is the mentality of a hireling pastor who is not protecting the sheep. And I played that role. Too many times. So I'm being corrected regarding love and loving you guys and wanting to protect you and your families and your kids. I'm recognizing my role more clearly and the boldness that I'm being called to in confronting sin. And um, I'm just gonna be brutally honest today and uh, essentially say if, if you want a pastor to do a Bible book report every week and not touch your lives and not get involved in the junk and send you home feeling real good about yourself every day, go find that pastor. I'm not gonna be him. I can't be him. So I'm gonna protect. And I'm praying for the boldness to say what needs to be said when it needs to be said. I'm praying for eyes to see what needs to be seen when I look each of you in the eyes. And I don't say this with fear. I say it with huge expectations. because God showed me Egypt and the Exodus as the why. So there are aspects to this boldness and this confronting sin in the congregation that fall on me. I recognize that very clearly, but that's not all. It doesn't stop there. It falls on and includes all of us and we'll discuss that more next week. And until then, Father God, we, we first and foremost recognize and declare you are the one true living God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. We give you thanks and praise that you are the God of endless patience, love, grace, mercy, And you are the God of justice and holiness and wrath and anger. We praise you that you are perfect in every way, balanced, whole, and complete, that every response you give is perfect, 
that every order and law and truth that you have established is right and real. We give you thanks and praise that you are aligning us with you. That to ever increasing, in ever increasing ways, we are learning of your divine nature that we might partake in it. We pray one more time for empowerment from on high to walk in agape love and to love as you loved. We pray for boldness in the season to come, specifically for eyes to see the truth and for the trust in the patience to not prepare what to speak but to allow your words to be put in our mouth. And as those words come against sin in this congregation, we pray that they would be met with gratitude, with clarity and revelation that it's truly love. You are the good shepherd. We are sheep of your pasture. And that your protection is real and necessary we thank you that we are already living in your protection i thank you i praise you god for your protection over my family that we've already experienced that we experience daily the salvation that we experience daily the eternal life that we already experience daily and it fuels us lord to want more obedience to abide even closer. And so we pray for this seed to take root in our hearts and bear much fruit. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.